I'm Kevin Richard. Alex LeBeau is president of the Idaho Association for Commerce and Industry. IACI is one of the most influential and powerful lobbying groups at the Statehouse, focused mostly on business issues, corporate concerns, but there's obviously an intersection between business concerns and education topics, and that's what I wanted to explore this week. We talk about education issues and how the business community is viewing that, and I get his take on the 2022 elections. Here's what he had to say. Alex, thank you for joining us this week. I wanted to start by maybe just having you take a second to talk about what your group's approach to this 2022 session is. I mean, I got to imagine it's being affected by the economic realities of 2022, inflation, labor shortages. How is that affecting your priorities this year? It really hasn't changed a whole lot of our priorities. Our priorities of, of uh, over the last several years have been almost entirely uh, focused in on workforce issues and the variety of problems associated with that. Um, you know, it, the, this economy, I think, just accentuates some of the issues that we've been talking about for the last several years when, when you're at a 2.5% uh, unemployment rate and you're having a struggle trying to find uh, qualified employees to work in a variety of different uh arenas, I think that uh, the workforce issues in the, in, the, in the public policy side of things, um, that really hasn't changed a whole lot from, from our priority standpoint. Mm -hmm. And that's got to lead straight into education and your right. education priorities. So, so walk us through that. Well, so, you know, fundamentally, when, when you look at the, the lay of the land in Idaho, we when we started looking at the workforce issue, we, we started to notice there were a couple of different issues associated with it. One on the front end, um, dealing with the issue of child care and uh, a school preparation, school readiness, uh, and then one on the back end about students uh, being able to go back and get uh, additional education that might make them qualified for a variety of different positions, whether everything from uh, welding to nursing to any number of things that have been uh, long. Uh, we've had a long shortage of a variety of those types of folks. And what can we do to bring people into the workforce? And what can we do as employers to make sure that we're asking for the right kind of skill sets? Because, um, and so if I can, I can really take this in in a, in a bifurcated way and, and focus in on two priorities. Let's go with the the, the bigger one first. Uh, the bigger one first deals with the issue of what we refer to as as talent uh, and talent pipeline. We partnered with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce uh, over the talent pipeline management system, and the Workforce Development Council gave us a grant on it. We've trained some people up, and we have additional grants that are going forward this year to really start to put a finer point on what we refer to as talent pipeline management. Mm -hmm. It is It takes supply chain principles and applies them to your workforce uh, piece. One of the things that business has uh, been really good about is complaining about the fact they're not getting the qualified workers that they are. What they what, what they're what they're uh, not so good about doing is explaining exactly what they need. What they need, yeah. and that's yeah. And so that's really what uh, the talent pipeline management system is designed to do. Is it takes like kind industries, puts them together, and says, look. 
yeah, there's this certification and that certification, but let's go a little deeper and let's talk about the very specific skills that we need in order to be able to fill the positions that we have. And we have X amount of positions here and X amount of positions there. And we start to really get into the more granular aspects of the skills that are being taught within these certifications. Then it takes it one step further and it goes to the individual providers around the state, whether that's a, a higher ed institution or, or a private institution or a, a community college. It really doesn't matter where they come from and, and they become preferred providers for that particular skill set. And so that making those connections is pretty important. There are a number of states that have already done this uh, and we're kind of late to the game on it, but um, it's really sort of changing the way that business and education can talk to each other because business has really uh, come to the point of saying, well, you know, we really need to provide you with additional information about how we want these employees to be. The problem with it, you know, the, the, uh, higher education side of it, and this is a problem that I hear from all of the community colleges, is, is a number of these folks enter into these programs, whether it's nursing, welding, whatever, and trucking, uh, and these people get picked off uh, a year into a two-year certification. Mm -hmm. Well, education is paid off of how many certifications they have. You know, business just has taken the people, and so there's these creative uh, uh relationships that are forming between those that are providing the certification and the, and the folks that are actually taking the employees right. and well, let's make that second year uh, on the job training and, and provide them the certification so that they hold that. Right. So you've got that competition between the employers and the institutions. Right. And I guess some of that's inevitable, but maybe it's accentuated and intensified right now in this market. Absolutely. And that's the thing. You've got a 2.5% unemployment. Uh, you know, we're dying for people. Uh, if they've got one year under their belt, they can probably hop into into any number of these jobs and, and complete their certification right. on the job. And and that's that's pretty common right now. Um, so that's that, that but that creates that tension between um, higher education and, and the business community uh, because the business community isn't as interested in the certification piece as they are as the skill set. And that's where we're trying to mirror the two up so that um, that, that that conversation can occur and they can supply those uh, folks into the workforce. This leads to the second point. Um, the problem that Idaho has, uh, and a lot of states have this problem right now, but, but Idaho had this problem prior to the pandemic, was we went out and, and did some research about, okay, well, where are these employees and what's what's preventing them from entering the, the marketplace? And what we found was at the time, 80% of childbearing age women uh, were not actually in the workforce. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that had to do with the lack of available childcare uh, around the state. Some of it's cultural and that's fine, but what we, what we started to uh, evaluate is, well, here's a ready-made workforce for us that are, is already living in the state of Idaho. What is it that we have to do in order to bring them into our facilities and, and, and you know, provide them with, with that level of employment? And part of the problem was not just uh, the cost associated with childcare, which anybody that's ever mm -hmm. had a yeah. kid in childcare understands you're paying like another mortgage. Um, it, it's it's not just that; it's simply the lack of available slots. So 
even trying to get uh, your kid into slot, it, they, you know, you've got these ridiculous wait times. You got to apply two years before you even know that you're going to have a kid. And it, mm-hmm. it just, yeah. the, the connection just isn't there. And so we also worked with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and, and others to start to develop these collaboratives around the state to provide some of these solutions. Now, a lot of my members are fairly large employers uh, and, you know, they can solve this problem pretty much uh, on their own. Uh, and a lot of the companies uh, that, you know, are the household names around Idaho, like the Microns and the Simplons and some of these others are evaluating how they would do a child care facility nearby for their employees. Um, there's a lot of things that go into that. You know, we're not in the business of doing child care. We're in the business of making this or doing that. Um, and so the, the hard part is making the connection between those child care providers uh, that would do it and the business themselves, because really there's just not anywhere nationwide where there's just a, a company that just comes in and says, okay, well, we'll handle your, your child care needs. And then the company just writes a check to that company. It's, it's more complicated than that, uh, unfortunately, but that's one of the things that we're dealing with in this year in the legislature and in prior years in the legislature with some specific grants. Um, and the grants are designed to actually build out um, an infrastructure that currently is just simply non-existent for employees. And that's going to help Idaho's overall economy and will help the citizens, giving them some options that are out there uh, for uh, a child care so that folks can be in the workforce and then their kids can have a, a, a quality place to go because it's more than just, you know, it's it's way more than just putting a fence in the backyard and letting them run around. You know, we're, we're talking about uh, things where they can uh, start to get into uh, uh, some, you know, very basic math and very basic reading skill sets and, and spending those socialization times that, 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 that typically a lot of kids that go through the Montessori programs or any number of programs get. And that's kind of what we're talking about. And I know childcare and early education, they're not analogous completely. There, there's, you know, there's some overlap, but not entirely overlap. You've been at the state house pushing for early education. You've forged an alliance with, with Beth Oppenheimer from AEYC, but this has been a tough issue at the state house. Why has it been so difficult? Oh, you've got certain organizations that are just not lying about about what the objectives are, and 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 you know within the hard right, within that certain core group of the hard right, that are more than willing to just go ahead and lie about things on the house floor. Um, you, you have people that are being influenced or being spooked away by um, by those kinds of things, and that's really hard to combat. No matter what it is, um, disinformation is always a, a, a difficult thing to combat, um, and and you know, but. The, the, the people that are ultimately uh, paying the price for that are Idaho citizens, uh, and, and they're not giving them any opportunity to to succeed. And, and you know, it's for political expediency, and it's just, you know, it's, it's more common than it used to be, um, but I really do believe that there is quite a bit of pushback in, amongst some of the legislators uh, today where they're just saying, you know, enough's enough. And we're not going to, we're not going to sit and just listen to um, uh, the BS that's being, that's being brought forward by, by certain, certain groups. Now, you know, granted, you have to pay attention to what's going on. Uh, that That's just the reality of it. But it's, it's become more of a, a difficult issue than it really should be. But, you know, it's, that's politics. Just 
is. And, and does that extend to you and to your membership on higher education? I'm really curious where your membership is viewing the higher education issue. Are they concerned about the politics of what's happening on campus, or are they concerned about the politicization of the higher education budgets? The second, um, and I and I really think that you know you get into these things, these these mythologies that there's these indoctrinations that are occurring in in higher education. By God, we're going to cut your budget because of critical race theory and all of these things that nobody can define. Um, and and it was nice to see. Uh, President Green pushed back on that finally. It was the right time. You know, it, 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 I, I think if that speech had been given a year prior, that wouldn't have gone over very well. This year it went over well because I think people were, have kind of had enough. Um, but our membership certainly has great concerns about that, uh, about how these narratives are driving uh, real world policy and real world budget decisions that are impacting our ability to have a qualified workforce. And I think that that's a, a, a very large concern uh, of a lot of my members, um, especially when we're not even talking about real things. When you see a go on rate decline again this year and, and continuing to decline even before the pandemic, but maybe more sharply during the pandemic, what does that say to you? I think, honestly, um, I might be going a little different direction than you might think on this. Uh, I, I don't think we're measuring the right things. Okay. Um, and, and that's been a, a criticism that we've had about this, this the, the goal on goal. And I think that some people are coming around to that fact. I don't know if, if you know, somebody that goes right from high school and into a, a a CTE program or, or into higher education or whatever, you know, that's a pretty linear number that you can measure. Um, yep, they went from point A to point B and, you know, did they in fact graduate? I think a better measure is, is you know, are people going back and getting the education they need and are they ending up in the jobs that they want? And a prime example of that is somebody, a student from Eastern Idaho, and I have a lot of anecdotal uh, information about this, but a student from Eastern Idaho uh, who comes off a 3,000 acre ranch, goes up to the University of Idaho after high school, takes an accounting class, takes a, a, a agricultural economics class and maybe a couple of other classes, and then goes back and runs uh, the 3,000 acre ranch after taking all those basic classes they need. Um, that's a success as far as mm -hmm. I'm concerned but that's a failure under the system that we're measuring right now. And so, you know, we don't measure those that go on into the military where they're learning skill sets and learning those kinds of things. I think that that's a mistake. And we don't really, aren't really good at measuring people that are just kind of picking at it. You know, there's a lot of folks that, that, can't go full time. And so, you know, they might take a class here, they might take a class there, and then eventually they might become a nurse. Um, we don't we, we we don't count that as a go on necessarily very well, and and I, I really think that we have to rethink how we're doing this linear measurement. Um, it's a it, it's a great soundbite, but are folks getting into the jobs that they originally wanted to get into after high school? And if if they're getting there then that's a successful system. Um, if, if there is a barrier somewhere, then how do we deal with that? So I'm not as concerned about that because again, that goes back to what I was originally saying about certifications. Um, you know, it's, it's considered a failure if they leave before they get their certification into the, you know, into the trucking system. <laughs> but as far as we're concerned, that's a success. 
Right. I mean, and, and I've heard this argument made by educators as well, that measuring the completion rate is measuring a successful outcome. It's not measuring the only successful outcome. And that's kind of what yeah. I think I'm hearing from you here. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the it, it's I, I think that we have to just we have to take it with a grain of salt. We have to say, well, are we actually filling the need? And I think that's where this talent pipeline management um, uh, program is going to be a lot more successful because we also, as a business community, recognize that we have to be better about explaining the skill sets that we need. And and if, you know, if certifications aren't meeting that, then we need to we need to explain to them what it is that we actually need. What do you think is happening? Maybe not as much in Idaho with community colleges, but nationally, community colleges are really, they're being hit hard in this pandemic. They're being hit hard post-pandemic. Why do you think that is? And, and how does it tie into what you're talking about in terms of employers explaining their needs? I think um, in community colleges in particular, uh, when, when you have a 2.5% unemployment situation, community colleges, you typically see a dip in, in, in their enrollment. Uh, and then when the economy slows down, you see a, a ramp up in their ramp up in their enrollment because people are going and retooling their skill sets. And and I think that I'm not as concerned in Idaho uh, about what we're doing because I think we have a finally have a pretty good community college network, mm-hmm. uh, and that wasn't you know without effort uh, to get you know the. The one over in the eastern side of the state, the one over here, you mm-hmm. know, and the one in the south is one down south has been around for a long time. We've got some issues with the one up north that have nothing to do with education, but um, but just getting them set the, up, just getting that two thirds support in eastern Idaho, especially. But yeah, you know, and, and our organization was involved in that. Now that we actually have some infrastructure associated with it, um, we can start to take advantage of that by building on those programs and making sure that those pipelines exist. Um, and then, you know, more importantly, that those students um, recognize the connection between, oh, if I go from high school to this community college, I can have this job. Creating that vision for them uh, is another problem that I know hasn't been particularly good at uh, in any consistent way. And that's kind of some of the some of the policy issues that we work on. I wouldn't be doing my job completely if I uh, let you go without uh, asking a little bit about politics, a little bit about this election year. As we head into it, we head into the filing period in a couple of weeks. What, What's your view of this election year coming forward? And what's, uh, what's your membership watching for this election cycle? Well, this is a big, this one's huge. Uh, we're going to, we anticipate we're going to see about a 50% turnover in the legislature uh, is what we, what we're analyzing uh, because of the reapportionment and the way that these the way that these districts have, have been set up uh, so we're watching who's getting in uh, to these races very carefully uh, I think that's going to be a very high priority for us uh, we can't be in every race but we'll be involved in some of these races and we'll be involved in races uh, for for those folks that support employers and that support the citizens, uh, we are not particularly enthusiastic about ideologues. 
um, on the left or the right. Uh, and, and, you know, if there are opportunities to prevent them from being successful in their election, you know, we'll pay attention to that too. So I think that that's kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's a big year. It's a, uh, a watershed opportunity but i also think that this really is going this this election every 10 years this is the one that sets the tone for the decade Mm -hmm. even though we're getting you know a lot heavier turnover every two years you know 20 30 percent somewhere around there this 50 percent turnover it's going to dictate who's in leadership it's going to dictate uh how the committees are structured it's going to dictate a whole number of things and create either avenues or barriers for uh, a business's uh, agenda uh, for the next decade. So, um, yeah, very critical for us. And, and it really changes your role or in, intensifies your role going to that 2023 session. I mean, lobbyists get a bad name, but when you have that kind of turnover, you have that many new legislators, the, the role of lobbyists becomes, you know, you know whether people want to like it or not, you're you're yeah, viewed I, more. The, the reality is, is, is uh, you know, yeah, lobbyists get a bad name. It's easy to give them a bad name. But the reality is, is there isn't any single person up at that Capitol building that is an expert on every single issue mm-hmm. that's out there. And, and the role of lobbyists that are worth their salt is, is not to just go up and glad hand and, and, and all of that, but you're building a relationship and a trust relationship with that individual so that when they're out seeking information, and from my example, they're seeking information about how a policy might um, affect an employer, um, that's my job to, to give them that data and information about our perspectives on why this is either a good thing or a bad thing on the legislation. And so it's a way for citizens and, and organizations to engage in the process. And so I'm always really cautious and I always warn people, I said, when they're talking about special interests, being involved in all of that, you know, everybody's represented by a special interest of some sort right. and, and lobbyists are really the conduit for that. So it's very important for citizens to recognize uh, that they, if, if they have a quality representation up there or, or they don't, because, but for that, um, you know, they're making decisions that they really may not have the full picture on. Right. In a state with a part-time legislature with limited staff, I mean, you know, right. they're going to be seeking answers from somewhere, these legislators, especially the new ones. Well, Alex, it was great to catch up and talk through some of these things. Uh, hopefully we'll get to do it again. You bet. Really enjoyed it. Thank you much. Thanks. Again, that was Alex LeBeau, president of the Idaho Association for Commerce and Industry, better known around the Statehouse as IACI. And if somehow you haven't gotten enough news from the Statehouse this week, go to idahoednews.org and we will get you caught up. Blake Jones and I are covering the session from gavel to gavel, the education committees, the floor sessions, the budget committee, all with an eye to education policy and education politics. We publish a roundup of Statehouse News every weekday, so check in Monday through Friday for all the latest. A lot more at the website at idahoednews.org this week. State Board of Education met on Thursday, and they uh, broke quite a bit of news. I have the latest on all of that. Kyle Fonensteel continues to break news all over the Treasure Valley. He has the latest on the Boise School District's mask policy. We have the latest on some upheaval on the West Ada School Board. And we have the latest on a rather lucrative contract for a clerk in the Nampa School District. Kyle broke all those stories, so we have all those stories. So go to idahoednews.org and get the latest. 
And I also have a story that I broke on Tuesday pertaining to a $3.5 million education contract that was awarded on a no-bid basis to a company out of North Carolina. Two months after the contract was awarded, Governor Brad Little's education point person, Greg Wilson, took a job with that company. We have all of that timeline, that whole story. We broke that on Tuesday, so find that at idahoednews.org. Follow us on Twitter at idahoednews. We uh, tweet out the links to our latest stories and bulletins on breaking news. Follow us on Facebook and comment on our stories there. And check back with us next Friday for another edition of the podcast. Until then, I'm Kevin Richard. Have a good week.